Hey, we're going to be in Mark chapter 8 this morning, if you want to turn there, uh, and we are going to be looking at some questions uh, that Jesus asked. So let me pray. God, thank you so much for what you have done today, what you're doing in our lives, and God, as we look into your word, I pray that you would open it up, that we would see ourselves in this story, uh, and teach us the things uh, that you want us to see this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you uh, missed last week, we are in a sermon series which is called Seven Questions, uh, and this will be the seven weeks leading up to Easter, so Easter would be, I guess, six weeks away from today, uh, and basically the idea behind this um, sermon series is looking at questions that Jesus asked, and as you read the Gospels, as you look at the life of Jesus, there are all kinds of places and times when people come and ask Jesus questions, but there's also times where he turns that around and he asks people questions. And the thing is, if you think about it, you kind of got to wrestle with just the idea of Jesus asking a question and say, why would Jesus need to ask a question? Because if, it, if Jesus is God, which I believe that he is, and if Jesus knows everything, which I believe he does, and if Jesus can know what's in a heart of somebody and know what's in the minds of somebody, then why would Jesus need to ask a question? Because he already knows what the answer is. Have you ever thought about that? Like, why does Jesus ask a question? He already knows the answer to what the, question, to what the answer will be. But here's why. It's whenever Jesus asks a question, and you can kind of look for this as you read the Gospels on your own, but whenever Jesus asks the question... The purpose is not because Jesus wants to know the answer. The reason is because that person who's answering the question needs to wrestle with the answer. That's why Jesus asks the question. And so this morning, we're going to look at a question that Jesus asked. This question appears in three out of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's a question that I think is probably the single most important question that could ever be asked or ever be answered. And the question is this, who do you say that I am? That's the most important question that could ever be asked. Who do you say that Jesus is? And that question, no matter how old you are, no matter what phase of life, no matter where you're at spiritually, that question is the most important question that can be asked and that can be answered. Who do you say that Jesus is? If you've been following God for a long time, that's still the most important question. Who is Jesus to you? If maybe you're here, you're watching, and you're trying to figure out, like, what is Jesus about? Who is he? I don't quite get this whole thing. That's the most important question that you can answer. Because how you answer that question determines what life looks like for you on this earth and what your eternity looks like. You know, you may even be asking the question, like, who is Jesus? Or maybe the question you're asking is like, do I want to be a part of a church? Do I even like church people? And we ask some of these questions sort of in and around that. But those questions pale in comparison to the ultimate question. The question is not, do I like church? Do I like church people? Is this the right church for me? Those questions are irrelevant. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? 
who do you believe that he is? And so we pick up this story, and we're going to look at the context around this question in Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, and begins in verse 27. It says this. It says, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And so Jesus asked this question, Who do people say that I am? Now, it says that they're on their way to Caesarea Philippi, and that is relevant in terms of a background context of the question that Jesus asked. Because Caesarea Philippi was this place that was kind of like a, a melting pot of all the different religions. They had temples to all kinds of different gods, and everybody would sort of come there. It was sort of like a mecca. It was sort of like a food, it's like a food court of worshiping different religions, different gods. And so that's where he's at. And so he asked this question with this backdrop of this kind of religious food court of who do people say that I am? So they answer the question this way. Begins uh, in, verse, in verse 28. It says, And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So he says, who do people say that I am? He said, well, here's who some people think you are. Some people think that you're John the Baptist. But that was a weird sort of answer because John the Baptist uh, is only about six months older than Jesus. It wasn't like he came a long time ago. He could have been reincarnated, right? Other people say, well, you're kind of like Elijah. And the thing about Elijah is Elijah was a prophet in the Old Testament who died, right? And, and, so, and so people look at that and um, or is Elisha the one that was taken up to heaven? I should check on that. Some, somebody check on that theologically for me. Which one was it? Lisa? Elisha was the one that went straight to heaven. There we go. It was Elisha. Anyway, but people say, well, it's Elijah who went straight to heaven and then came back. Did I get that right? <laughs> this is, I, I taught a theology class in the fall, and this is like my star student section right there. You guys were great too, but they were the stars. But here's the thing, as you look at John, as you look at Elijah, they were prophets who were basically telling people to change the way that you live. They were kind of into behavior modification, if you will. Change this, change this, shape up, do things differently, live differently. And when the disciples said that's who people say that you are, they were saying some people think that you came just to change behavior. But that falls far short of why Jesus actually came. And then they also tack on, and others say, you are one of the prophets. And the, I think that part of their answer reveals the way that a lot of people look at Jesus today. And maybe you're even here investigating Christianity to find, is this who I think Jesus is? But a lot of people say, Jesus was just a good moral teacher. He wasn't God, but he did teach a lot of good things and principles that people can carry on. There's an author named C.S. Lewis, who you may know, who wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Mere Christianity, a number of different books. Um, but in the book Mere Christianity, he talks about this idea of the foolishness of believing that Jesus was just a good moral teacher. And he writes this, and it's about a paragraph long, I'm going to read it to you and hang with me. He says this. This is C.S. Lewis writing. I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. 
I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely excuse me, a man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher, because Jesus in fact claimed to be God. It says he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman, a liar, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about this being as a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to do so. And I love the way that C.S. Lewis puts it. He says, we can't say Jesus was just a moral teacher. It makes no logical sense based on all the rest that he said. So then he continues on in verse 29. So he says, who do they say? And then he turns it to them. He says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And as I read that phrase, I do wonder which word the emphasis was on. Like, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? But I, the way that I read it, it doesn't, you know, the inflection is not written down. But I think the inflection is probably on the word you. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And I would put that same question and that same emphasis to you this morning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because it is your thought that matters. Because I think sometimes we ride kind of on the coattails of other people, right? We ride on the coattails. We're like, well, you know, my parents taught me this, so that's what I believe. Well, my wife, she really strongly believes this, so I just sort of come along with it. Well, our church talks about Jesus is this, so that's what I believe. But none of that matters. It doesn't matter what I believe. It doesn't matter what your husband or your wife or your parents or your church growing up believed, believes. What matters is what do you believe? Who do you believe that Jesus is? So here is the answer that Jesus, or that Peter gives. Verse 29, it says, Peter answered him, you are the Christ. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, it adds to it. it says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, was his full answer. So he says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Uh, the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, gives a little bit more information, and Jesus gives a response. It says, and Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, which means son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father who is in heaven. Peter gives this answer, and Jesus says, yes, that's the answer. Well done. As a matter of fact, that answer is so good, it didn't even come from you. It came from God above. We're going to talk a little bit more about what that means, but I want to take a bit of an aside. And when we ask this question, who do you say that Jesus is? I think there's some answers that come to mind for us 
that we maybe act out. We may not use these exact words, but this is how we kind of treat Jesus. Here's one view, is that Jesus is like a get-out-of-jail-free card, right? You know, this, when, you get, when you die and you go to heaven, this is like a get-out-of-hell card. Like, when I get to heaven, I have Jesus, so I'm going to present this at the gates, and that's what Jesus is to me. He's just basically, I'll live my life however I want, but I have Jesus as my Savior, and so I can get out of hell for free. That's, that's what Jesus is, and that's some people's view of Jesus. Here's another view. I call this the non—oops— I call this the genie view. <laughs> uh, the genie view is, uh, this is the person that says, you know, that Jesus is just there to answer my questions when I, when I need something. If I need something in life, then I call on the genie, and then he answers and gives me what I need. Okay, here's the next one. I'll follow you. There we go. Uh, this is the Jesus is my cuddle dog, right? And this is all that I could kind of think of as a, as a picture for this. But I think sometimes our view of Jesus is reduced to this idea of, you know, when I'm sad, when I'm in need, when I need something, when I need comfort, when life goes difficult, then Jesus is always available and I can pull him out and I can cuddle with him and he'll minister me and comfort me. And, and that's true. That is part of who Jesus is but it misses all of who Jesus is. The next one is miracle grow, right? And I think this is sometimes our view of Jesus, that we, like, I live my life, and then I'm going to take Jesus and add him into my life to just make what I want better, right? I'm going to add him into my sports team. I'm going to add him into my marriage. I'm going to add him into my finances. I'm going to add him into how I raise my kids. I'm going to add him into, and it's like, he's just miracle. You just add Jesus to anything, and, and things get better. Or the other one is Dr. Phil, right? We go, this is Jesus to me. He's like Dr. Phil. Like, if I need some instruction about life, if I'm not sure which way to go, if I, I'll just call on Jesus, and he will say, go this way or go that way. He'll give me good advice, just like Dr. Phil. And is, you, do you have one more? Okay. And then the last one is 911, right? That, that Jesus is just there. When I get in trouble, when somebody in my family gets in trouble, then he's there and I can dial 911, I can dial Jesus, and he's going to come in and rescue me and fix my situation. Now, as you think back over those five or six illustrations, right, the thing about them is all of them have an element of truth, right? That, not that Jesus is your cuddle dog, but, but that <laughs> Jesus is there, to provide comfort, right? Jesus is the way that we get out of hell and we enter into heaven. But all of those are incomplete. And so what Jesus says, and in this interaction with Peter, he says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Christ. And then it goes on and it says this, verse 29. It says, and he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And then listen to what he says next. And he strictly charged them not to tell anyone about him. You go, that doesn't make sense. Like why, like don't tell anybody about what we just figured out. Like that just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Because I mean, you know, we always hear like, go share the gospel, proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth and all of that stuff. Why is it? that Jesus at this moment in time would say, 
I am the Christ, but don't tell anybody. Here's why. It's because their understanding of the Christ was an incomplete understanding at this point in time. And it'll become evident as we read this in a few minutes. But the, the word, and I kind of use these words interchangeably, but the word Christ and the word Messiah mean the same thing. The Messiah comes from the Hebrew, Christ comes from the Greek. And they both mean, it means the anointed one of God. But at this point in time, they didn't fully understand what that meant. And as a matter of fact, the people at that time, when they thought about a Messiah, or when they thought about the Christ, the, this, the Jews were living under, under captivity, or basically kind of an, they were an occupied nation of the Roman Empire. Okay? And so for them, they were looking for a conquering Messiah. Now, imagine this scene, and Jesus doesn't give them that don't tell anyone phrase. And then Peter and the rest of the disciples, they go and say, we have found the Messiah. We have found the Christ. His name is Jesus. If you lived in that time and you had this incomplete understanding of Christ or incomplete understanding of the Messiah, do you know what you would probably do? What we would probably do? We would go to our homes and we would get our swords and we would get our spears and we'd get our clubs and we would go and we would meet at the town center and say, we are going to follow the Messiah and overthrow the Roman government because that's what the Messiah is. They had an incomplete understanding of who Jesus was. Because Jesus didn't come to conquer the Romans. Jesus came to conquer sin and death that we might have a relationship with God. He had a greater purpose than just throwing off the Roman government. So then it continues on, picking up in verse 31. And by the way, as you know, it, Jesus did say, go and proclaim it to the world. But it was only after that point in time that he had died and then he rose again. And that was when the disciples got like, oh, now we understand the full picture. But even as we read this, we'll see that at this point in time, that Peter, who's kind of the voice piece, the mouthpiece, doesn't have a complete understanding. So this is verse 31. It says this. It says, And he, that's Jesus, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man, that's the way that he refers to himself, must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So you can kind of picture this scene. That Jesus begins to teach about himself. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to rise in three days. And Peter pulls him aside and rebukes him. He says, no, I, that's not a good plan, Jesus. I know that you're God. I know I just said that you're the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, but that, that's not a good plan. I think we should do this. And I, who knows what went into all that Peter said. I do wonder what happened 
with Peter when he went home and told his wife about the story. So Peter was one of the disciples who was married. And I can just picture him going home and his wife said, so Peter, how was the trip with Jesus to Caesarea Philippi? He goes, well, started out great. He told me that I had the best answer, that my answer was so good that it came straight from God. And then he told me I was Satan and didn't get better. You know, and so it's just the highs and lows of that day are pretty amazing. But that question that he asked, who do you say that I am? That's the question that we wrestle with. Do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you believe that he died on the cross and rose from the dead? Do you believe all that Jesus is? Or do you just believe kind of a part of this is the part of Jesus that I want? You know, and as you're sitting here and I'm asking the question, who do you say that Jesus is? I think most of us are probably saying, I think he's the Christ. I believe he's the Christ. But then the second question after that is, does your life reflect what you say that you believe? Because you look at, look at Peter and he said, you are the Christ, but yet not that his life didn't match up, but what he wanted from Jesus didn't match up with that. And so then as the gospel writer, as, as Mark writes this, he unfolds for us what it looks like when we answer the question with our lives of what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ. And so I want to take the last few minutes and talk about that. So in Mark 9.33, Jesus says this. He says, For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So I'm going to give you four things that are true when Jesus is our Christ. So when Jesus is my Christ, my mind is set on the things of God. We're talking about our mind, our actions, our words, and our life. My mind is set on the things of God. I'm part of a home group on Monday nights, and we've been going through the book of Colossians. And we got to a portion of Colossians chapter 3 where it talks about what is eternal and what, what's not eternal. And, and we kind of wrestled with this question. It said, when we talk about setting our minds on the things of God or the things that are eternal, what are the things that are eternal? And there's really only three things that last forever, that last beyond the end of our lives. It's God, God's Word, and people. Those are the three things that last. And so is our mind set on those things? Nothing else in our lives lasts into eternity. Houses, cars, vacations, businesses, social media likes, money, power, looks, none of those things last into eternity. Now, that doesn't mean you can't drive a car, you can't put on makeup, and you can't be on Facebook. That's not what that means. But the question is, where is your focus? Is your mind set on the things above? You know, and even as we look at this, I think about the benefit of living with our mind set on the things above. Because as you think about the things that cause you stress and worry and anxiety in life, the vast majority of those are things of earth, are things that won't matter in eternity. And most of the time, they're things that don't matter next week or next month, but we get all wrapped up in those things. Jesus continues his teaching in verse 34. He says this, And calling the crowd to him, and with his disciples, 
he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So in Christ, when Jesus is my Christ, my actions are marked by sacrifice. My actions are marked by sacrifice. And you look at what he teaches there. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross, the instrument that would be his instrument of death. Take up your cross and follow me. His life was lived by sacrifice. And I would encourage you, if you say, Jesus is my Christ. Who do you believe Jesus is? He's the Christ then your life will be marked by sacrifice. You will sacrifice your time. You will sacrifice your money. You will sacrifice your will for other people's will. You will sacrifice your will for God's will. It does require sacrifice if we're to live with Jesus as the Christ and Lord of our lives. In verse 35, a little bit longer section, it says this. Uh, hold on. Yeah, verse 35. It says, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? And that, I mean, we could dig into that for a long time, but really what Jesus does is he kind of flips things upside down. He says, if you want to save your life, if you want to save your life, then live it for Jesus. If you want to lose your life, lose it for Jesus. That's the way that life is lived. So when Jesus is our Christ, my life is lived for a greater purpose. That our lives are lived for a greater purpose than just getting through today and what we want. It's lived for his purpose. Then verse 38 says, For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father and the angels and the holy angels. Saying that when we believe in Jesus, that we will proclaim that truth to other people. And so the fourth is this, is that my words proclaim the truth. That when we believe that Jesus is the Christ, we will proclaim the truth. It will flow out of us. I'm in a men's group on Thursday mornings, and we've been reading through this devotional book, and it kind of brings up all kinds of different things about life. And one of the things that we challenge each other to do is when God prompts us to do something, that we act on it immediately. And so one of the guys was sharing a story. He was at a conference in Atlanta, and he was like, I don't like the conference that much. So I went to the uh, hotel bar and the beers were like 14 bucks. He's like, I'm not paying 14 bucks for a beer. So he walks down the street to an Irish pub, right? And so he's sitting at the bar at this Irish pub having a beer that was probably less than $14. And, um, but he ends up sitting next to this guy and they begin to have a conversation, right? And they're just talking about what are you doing in Atlanta? And so my friend is sharing about, you know, this conference that he's at and some different things. Um, and, and they're really kind of building a relationship over this hour. Uh, and then the, the man shares with him uh, that his son is in the hospital. And that's part of, I think, why he was in Atlanta. Um, and so, but he was in an accident. And, I, and if I understood it correctly, he was riding a hoverboard, right? Those hoverboard things. And it, he fell and he broke, broke, he broke both of his knees and both of his ankles. And so... 
um, he was in the hospital, but they couldn't do surgery on him because his heartbeat was like 120 beats per minute. And they were afraid that if he did surgery on it, he would just bleed out because his heart was beating so fast. So my friend, who again, my men's group, says to this new friend that he's just met in the bars, they're having some beers together. He says, have you prayed for your son? And the guy's like, no, I mean, I, I kind of used to go to Catholic church, but now I'm kind of nothing, maybe an agnostic, maybe a nothing. I, you know, he goes, I, I don't really pray, so I haven't. So my friend says, would it be okay if I prayed for you? And he goes, yeah, that'd be great. And he goes, and he goes you know, when I pray I, with somebody, I like to kind of put a hand on their shoulder. Would it be okay if I put my hand on your shoulder? And so my friend is praying at an Irish pub bar in Atlanta hand on his shoulder for this guy's son. And I think about that, and I'm like, that is proclaiming the truth. And that when we say Jesus is the Christ, that's the outflow of our lives, that we are proclaiming the truth. We have the boldness to say, hey, I'm sitting in the bar in the middle of all these people. I'm going to lay a hand on this guy's shoulder and pray for him and his son. And they've kept up since then through email. I want to bring it back and ask you that question and just give you a couple minutes just to reflect. If you would just bow your heads and really take a good introspective look and ask yourself, who is Jesus to me? And then ask yourself, is that reflected in my life? Is my mind set on God? Do I sacrifice with my actions? Do I live for a greater purpose? Do I proclaim the truth about Jesus? And just allow the Lord to speak to you about where you're at and what you really believe, not what your lips say, not what people think you say, but what you believe, but what's actually in your heart.